Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan and work worry-free wherever you please. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck Chapter 20 The family, on top of the load, the children and Connie and Rose of Sharon and the preacher were stiff and cramped. They had sat in the heat in front of the coroner's office in Bakersfield while Pa and Ma and Uncle John went in. Then a basker was brought out and the long bundle lifted down from the truck. And they sat in the sun while the examination went on, while the cause of death was found and the certificate signed. Al and Tom strolled along the street and looked in store windows and watched the strange people on the sidewalks. At last, Pa and Ma and Uncle John came out, and they were subdued and quiet. Uncle John climbed up on the load. Pa and Ma got in the seat. Tom and Al strolled back, and Tom got under the steering wheel. He sat there, silently, waiting for some instruction. Pa looked straight ahead his dark hat pulled low. Ma rubbed the sides of her mouth with her fingers, and her eyes were far away and lost, dead with weariness. Pa 
sighed deeply. There wasn't nothing else to do, he said. I know, said Ma. I would have liked a nice funeral, though. She always wanted one. Tom looked sideways at them. County? he asked. Yeah. Pa shook his head quickly, as though to get back to some reality. We didn't have enough. We couldn't have done it. He turned to Ma. You ain't to feel bad. We couldn't, no matter how hard we tried, no matter what we done. We just didn't have it. Embalming, and a coffin, and a preacher, and a pot in a graveyard. It would have took ten times what we got. We done the best we could. I know, Ma said. I just can't get it out of my head. What store she set by a nice funeral? Got to forget it. She sighed deeply and rubbed the side of her mouth. That was a pretty nice feller in there. Awful bossy, but he was pretty nice. Yeah, Pa said. He give us the straight talk, all right. Ma brushed her hair back with her hand. Her jaw tightened. We got to get, she said. We got to find a place to stay. We got to get work and settle down. No use of letting little fellas go hungry. That was at never Grandma's way. She always ate a good meal at a funeral. Where are we going? Tom asked. Pa raised his hat and scratched among his hair. Camp, he said. We ain't gonna spend what little's left till we get work. Drive out in the country. Tom started the car and they rode through the streets and out towards the country. And by a bridge, they saw a collection of tents and shacks. Tom said, Might as well stop here. Find out what's a doing and where the work is at. He drove down a steep dirt incline and parked on the edge of the encampment. There was no order in the camp. Little grey tents, shacks, cars were scattered about at random. The first house was nondescript. The south wall was made of three sheets of rusty corrugated iron. The east wall, a square of mouldy carpet, tacked between two boards, and the north wall, a strip of roofing paper, and a strip of tattered canvas, and the west wall, six pieces of gunny sacking. Over the square frame, on the untrimmed willow limbs, grass had been piled, not thatched, but heaped up in a low mound. The entrance, on the gunny sack side, was cluttered with equipment. A five-gallon kerosene can served for a stove. It was laid on its side with a section of rusty stovepipe thrust in one end. A wash boiler rested on its side against the wall, and a collection of boxes lay about. Boxes to sit on, to eat on. A model T Ford sedan and a two-wheeled trailer were parked beside the shack, and about the camp there hung a sovereignly despair. Next to the shack, there was a little tent, grey with weathering, but neatly, properly set up, and the boxes in front of it were placed against the tent wall. A stovepipe stuck out of the door flap, and the dirt in front of the tent had been swept and sprinkled. A bucket full of soaking clothes stood on a box. The camp was neat and sturdy. A Model A roadster and a little homemade bed trailer stood beside the tent. And next, there was a huge tent, ragged, torn in strips, and the tears mended with pieces of wire. The flaps were up, and inside, four wide mattresses lay on the ground. A clothesline, strung along the side, 
wore pink cotton dresses and several pairs of overalls. There were forty tents and shacks, and beside each habitation, some kind of automobile. Far down the line, a few children stood and stared at the newly arrived truck, and they moved towards it, little boys in overalls and bare feet, their hair grey with the dust. Tom stopped the truck and looked at Pa. She ain't very purty, he said. Want to go somewhere else? Can't go nowhere else till we know where we're at, Pa said. We got to ask about work. Tom opened the door and stepped out. The family climbed down from the load and looked curiously at the camp. Ruthie and Winfeld, from the habit of the road, took down the bucket and walked towards the willows where there would be water, and the line of children parted for them and closed after them. The flaps of the first shack parted, and a woman looked out. Her grey hair was braided, and she wore a dirty, flowered mother hubbard. Her face was wizened and dull, deep grey pouches under the black eyes, and a mouth slack and loose. Pa said, can we just pull up anywheres and camp? The head was withdrawn inside the shack. For a moment, there was quiet, and then the flaps were pushed aside, and a bearded man in shirt sleeves stepped out. The woman looked out after him, but she did not come out into the open. The bearded man said, Howdy, folks! And his restless dark eyes jumped to each member of the family, and from them, to the truck, to the equipment. Pa said, I just asked your woman if it's all right to set our stuff anywhere. The bearded man looked at Pa, intently, as though he had said something very wise that needed thought. Set down anywheres, here in the place? he asked. Sure. Anybody on this place that we gotta see before we can camp? The bearded man squinted one eye nearly closed and studied Pa. You wanna camp here? Pa's irritation rose. The grey woman peered out of the burlap shack. What do you think I'm a-saying? Pa said. Well, if you want to camp here, why don't you? I ain't a-stopping you. Tom laughed. <laughs> he got it. Pa gathered his temper. I just wanted to know, does anybody own it? Do we got to pay? The bearded man thrust out his jaw. Who owns it? He demanded. Pa turned away. The hell with that, he said. The woman's head popped back into the tent. The bearded man stepped forward menacingly. Who owns it? he demanded. Who's going to kick us out of here? You tell me. Tom stepped in front of Pa. You better take a good, long sleep, he said. The bearded man dropped his mouth open and put a dirty finger against his lower gums. For a moment, he continued to look, wisely, speculatively at Tom. And then he turned on his heel and popped into the shack after the grey woman. Tom turned on Pa. What the hell was that? he asked. Pa shrugged his shoulders. He was looking across the camp. In front of a tent stood an old Buick, and the head was off. A young man was grinding the valves, and as he twisted back and forth, back and forth on the tool, he looked up at the Joe truck. They could see that he was laughing to himself. When the bearded man had gone, the young man left his work and sauntered over. How are you? he said, and his blue eyes were shiny with amusement. I seen you just met the mayor. 
What the hell's the matter with him? Tom demanded. The young man chuckled. He's just nuts like you and me. Maybe he's a little nutser than me. I don't know. Pa said, I just asked him if we could camp here. The young man wiped his greasy hands on his trousers. Sure, why not? You folks just come across? Yeah, said Tom. Just got in this morning. Never been in Hoovervale before? Where's Hoovervale? This here's her. Oh, said Tom. We just got in. Winfeld and Ruthie came back, carrying a bucket of water between them. Ma said, Let's get the camp up. I'm tuckered out. Maybe we can all rest. Pa and Uncle John climbed up on the truck to unload the canvas and the beds. Tom sauntered to the young man and walked beside him back to the car he had been working on. The valve-grinding brace lay on the exposed block, and a little yellow can of valve-grinding compound was wedged on top of the vacuum tank. Tom asked, What the hell's the matter with that old fellow with the beard? The young man picked up his brace and went to work, twisting back and forth, grinding the valve against the valve seat. The mayor, crass knows. I guess maybe he's bull sample. What's bull sample? I guess cops push him around so much he's still spinning. Tom asked, why'd they push a fellow like that around? The young man stopped his work and looked in Tom's eyes. Crass knows, he said. You just come? Maybe you can figure her out. Some fellas say one thing, and some says another thing. But you just camp in one place a little while, and you'll see how quick a deputy shoves you along. He lifted a valve and smeared compound on the seat. But what the hell for? I tell you, I don't know. Some says they don't want us to vote. Keep us moving so we can't vote. And some say so we can't get on relief. And some say, if we sit in one place, we get organized. I don't know why. I only know we get rolled all the time. You wait, you'll see. We ain't bums, Tom insisted. We're looking for work. We'll take any kind of work. The young man paused in fitting the brace to the valve slot. He looked in amazement at Tom. Looking for work? He said. So, you're looking for work. What do you think everybody else is looking for? Diamonds? What do you think I wore my ass down to a nerve looking for? He twisted the brace back and forth. Tom looked about at the grimy tents, the junk equipment, at the old cars, the lumpy mattresses out in the sun, the blackened cans on the fire-blackened holes where the people cooked. He asked quietly, Ain't there no work? I don't know. Must be. Ain't no crop right here now. Grapes to pick later, and cotton to pick later. We're moving on as soon as I get this here valves ground. Me and my wife and my kids. We heard there was work up north. We're shoving north, up round Salinas. Tom saw Uncle John and Pa and the preacher hoisting the tarpaulin on the tent poles, and Ma on her knees inside brushing off the mattresses on the ground. A circle of quiet children stood to watch the new family get settled. Quiet children with bare feet and dirty faces. Tom said, Back home, some fellas come through with handbills. Orange ones. Says they need lots of people out here to work the crops. 
The young man laughed. <laughs> they say there's 300,000 us folks here, and I bet every damn family seen them handbills. Yeah, but if they don't need folks, why'd they go to the trouble of putting things out for? Use your head, why don't you? Yeah, but I want to know. Look, the young man said, suppose you got a job for work, and there's just one fella who wants the job. You gotta pay him what he asks. But suppose there's a hundred men. He put down his tool. His eyes hardened and his voice sharpened. Suppose there's a hundred men wants that job. Suppose them men got kids and them kids is hungry. Suppose a lousy dime will buy a box of mush for them kids. Suppose a nickel will buy at least something for them kids. And you got a hundred men. Just offer them a nickel. Why they'll kill each other fighting for that nickel. Know what they was paying last job I had? Fifteen cents an hour. Ten hours for a dollar and a half. And you can't stay on the place. Got to burn gasoline getting there. He was panting with anger, and his eyes blazed with hate. That's why them handbills was out. You can print a hell of a lot of handbills with what you'll save paying 15 cents an hour for field work. Tom said, that's stinking. The young man laughed harshly. You stay out here a little while, and if you smell any roses, you come let me smell too. But they is work, Tom insisted. Christ almighty, with all this stuff for growing, orchards, grapes, vegetables, I seen it. They gotta have man. I seen all that stuff. A child cried in the tent beside the car. The young man went into the tent, and his voice came softly through the canvas. Tom picked up the brace, fitted it in the slot of the valve, and ground away, his hand wiping back and forth. The child's crying stopped. The young man came out and watched Tom. You can do her, he said. Damn good thing. You'll need to. How about what I said? Tom resumed. I seen all the stuff growing. The man squatted on his heels. I'll tell you, he said quietly. There's a big son of a bitch of a peach orchard I worked in. Takes nine men all year round. He paused impressively. Takes three thousand men for two weeks when them peaches are ripe. Gotta have them or those peaches rot. So what they do? They send out them handbills all over hell. They need three thousand, and they got six thousand. They get them men for what they want to pay. If you don't want to take what they'll pay, God damn it, there's a thousand men waiting for your job. So you pick, and you pick, and then she's done. Whole part of the country's peaches, all wrapped together. When you get them picked, every goddamn one is picked. There ain't another damn thing in that part of the country to do. And then them owners don't want you there anymore. Three thousand of you. The work's done. You might steal. You might get drunk. You might just raise hell. And besides, you don't look nice living in old tents. And it's a pretty country. But if you stink it up, they don't want you around. So they kick you out. They move you along. That's how it is. Tom 
looking down toward the Joad tent, saw his mother, heavy and slow with weariness, build a little trash fire, and put the cooking pots over the flame. The circle of children drew closer. The calm, wide eyes of the children watched every move of Ma's hands. An old, old man, with a bent back, came like a badger out of a tent, and snooped near, sniffing the air as he came. He laced his arms behind him, and joined the children to watch Ma. Ruthie and Winfeld stood near to Ma, and eyed the strangers belligerently. Tom said angrily, Them peaches gotta be picked right now, don't they? Just when they're ripe? Course they do. Well, suppose them people got together and says, Let them rot. Wouldn't be long for the prices went up, by God. The young man looked up from the valves, looked sardonically at Tom. Well, you figured out something, didn't you? Come right out of your own head. I'm tired, said Tom. Drove all night. Don't want to start no argument. And I'm so goddamn tired I argue easy. Don't be smart with me. I'm asking you. The young man grinned. I didn't mean it. You ain't been here. Folks figured that out. And the folks with the peach orchard figured her out too. Look. If the folks gets together, they's a leader. Got to be. Fella that does the talking. Well, first time this fella opens his mouth, they grab him and stick him in jail. And if there's another leader pops up, why, they stick him in jail. Tom said, well, a fella eats in jail anyways. His kids don't. How'd you like to be in, and your kids starving to death? Yeah, Tom said slowly. Yeah. And here's another thing. Ever hear of the blacklists? What's that? Well, you just open your trap about us folks getting together, and you'll see. They take your picture, and they send it all over, and you can't get work nowhere. And if you got kids... Tom took off his cap and twisted it in his hands. So we take what we can get, huh? Or we starve. And if we yelp, we starve. The young man made a sweeping circle with his hands, and his hand took in the ragged tents and the rusty cars. Tom looked down at his mother again, where she sat scraping potatoes, and the children had drawn closer. He said, I ain't gonna take it. God damn it. I and my folks ain't no sheep. I'll kick the hell out of somebody. Like a cop? Like anybody. You're nuts, said the young man. They'll pick you right off. You got no name, no property. They'll find you in a ditch, with the blood dried on your mouth and your nose. Be one little line in paper. Know what it'll say? Vagrant found dead. And that's it. You see a lot of them little lines. Vagrant found dead. Tom said, There'll be somebody else found dead right alongside this here vagrant. You're nuts, said the young man. Won't be no good in that. Well, what you doing about it? He looked into the grease-streaked face, and a veil drew down over the eyes of the young man. Nothing. Where are you from? Us? Right near Salisa, Oklahoma. Just get in? Just today. Gonna be around here long? Dunno. We'll stay wherever we can get work. Why? 
Nothing. And the veil came down again. Got to sleep up, said Tom. Tomorrow we'll go out looking for work. You can try. Tom turned away and moved towards the Jode tent. The young man took up a can of valve compound and dug his finger into it. Ha! he called. Tom turned. What do you want? I want to tell you. He motioned with his finger, on which the blob of the compound stuck. I just want to tell you. Don't go looking round for no trouble. Remember how that bull simple guy looked? Feller in the tent up there? Yeah. Looked dumb. No sense. What about him? Well, the cops come in. And they come in all the time. That's how they want you to be. Dumb. Don't know nothing. Don't understand nothing. That's how the cops like us. Don't hit no cops. That's just suicide. Be bull simple. Let the goddamn cops run over me and I do nothing? No, look here, here. I'll come for you tonight. Maybe I'm wrong. There's stools around all the time. I'm taking a chance here, and I got a kid too. But I'll come for you. And if you see a cop, why, you're a goddamn dumb okey. See? That's all right if we're doing anything, said Tom. Don't you worry. We're doing something. Only we ain't sticking our necks out. A kid starves quick. Two, three days for a kid. He went back to his job, spread the compound valve on a seat, and his hand jerked rapidly back and forth on the brace, and his hand was dull and dumb. Tom strode slowly back to his camp. Bull sample, he said under his breath. Pa and Uncle John came towards the camp, their arms loaded with dry willow sticks, and they threw them down by the fire and squatted on their hams. Got her picked over pretty good, said Pa. Had to go long ways for the wood. He looked up at the circle of staring children. Lord God Almighty, he said. Where'd you come from? All of the children looked self-consciously at their feet. Guess they smell the cooking, said Ma. Winfield, get out from underfoot. She pushed him out of her way. Got to make us up a little stew, she said. We ain't at nothing cooked rice since we came from home. Pa, you go up to the store there and get me some net meat. Make a nice stew here. Pa stood up and sauntered away. Al had the hood of the car up and he looked down at the greasy engine. He looked up when Tom approached. You sure look happy as a buzzard, Al said. I'm just gay as a toad in spring rain, said Tom. Look at the engine, Al pointed. Pretty good, huh? Tom peered in. Looks all right to me. All right? Jesus, she's wonderful. She ain't shot no oil or nothing. Jan screwed the spark plug and stuck his forefinger in the hole. Crusted up some, but she's dry. You done a nice job of picking, that's what you want me to say. Well, sure, I was scared the whole way, figuring she'd bust down, it'd be my fault. No, you done good. Better get her in shape, because tomorrow we're going out looking for work. She'll roll, said Al. Don't you worry none about that. He took out a pocket knife and scraped the points of the spark plug. Tom walked around the side of the tent, and he found Casey sitting on the earth, wisely regarding one bare foot. Tom sat down heavily beside him. Think she's gonna work? What? asked Casey. 
Them toes of yourn. Oh, just sitting here, thinking. You always get good and comfortable for it, said Tom. Casey waggled his big toe up and his second toe down, and he smiled quietly. Hard enough for a fella to think about kicking himself up to do that. Ain't heard a peep out of you for days, said Tom. Thinking all the time? Yeah, thinking all the time. Tom took off his cloth cap, dirty now, and ruinous. The visor pointed as a bird's beak. He turned the sweatband out and removed a long strip of folded newspaper. Sweat so much she shrank, he said. He looked at Casey's waving toes. Could you come down from your thinking and listen a minute? Casey turned his head on the stork-like neck. Listen all the time. That's why I've been thinking. Listen to people a-talking, and pretty soon I hear the way folks are feeling. Going on all the time. I hear them and feel them, and they're beating their wings like a bird in the attic. Gonna bust their wings on the dusty window trying to get out. Tom regarded him with widened eyes, and then he turned and looked at a grey tent twenty feet away. Wastra jeans and shirts and a dress hung to dry on the tent guys. He said softly, That was about what I was going to tell you. And you seen already? I seen, Casey agreed. There's an army of us without no harness. He bowed his head and ran his extended hand slowly up his forehead and into his hair. All along I seen it, he said. Every place we stopped, I seen it. Hungry folks for side meat. And when they get it, they ain't fed. And when they get so hungry, they couldn't stand it no more. Why, they just asked me to pray for them. And sometimes I done it. He clasped his hands around drawn-up knees and pulled his legs in. I used to think that I cut her, he said. Used to rip off a prayer. And all the troubles would stick to that prayer like flies on flypaper. And the prayer goes sailing off, taking them troubles along. But it don't work no more. Tom said, Prayer never brought no side meat. Takes a shot to bring in pork. Yeah, Casey said. An almighty God never raised me no wages. These here folks want to live decent and bring up their kids decent. And when they're old, they want to sit in the door and watch the drowning sun. And when they was young, they wanted to dance and sing and lay together. They want to eat and get drunk and work. And I say it. They want to just fling their goddamn muscles around and get tired. Christ, what am I talking about? I don't know, said Tom. Sounds kind of nice. When you think you can get to work and quit thinking a spell, we got to get to work. Money's back gone. Pa give five dollars to get a painted piece of board stuck over Grandma. We ain't got much left. A lean brown mongrel dog came sniffing around the side of the tent. He was nervous and flexed to run. He sniffed close before he was aware of the two men, and then looking up, he saw them, leapt sideways, and fled, ears back, bony tail clamped protectively. Casey watched him go, dodging around a tent to get out of sight. Casey sighed. I ain't doing nobody no good, he said. Me nor nobody else. I was thinking I'd go off alone by myself. I'm eating your food. I'm a-taking up room. And I ain't give you nothing. Maybe I can get a steady job and maybe pay back some of the stuff you give me. 
Tom opened his mouth and thrust his lower jaw forward, and he taped his lower teeth with the dried piece of mustard stalk. His eyes stared over the camp, over the grey tents and the shacks of weeds and tin and paper. Wished I had a sack of Durham, he said. I ain't had a smoke in a hell of a time. Used to get tobacco in McAllister. I almost wished I was back. He tapped his teeth again, and suddenly he turned on the preacher. Ever been in a jailhouse? No, said Casey. Never been. Don't go away right yet, said Tom. Not right yet. Quicker I get looking for work, quicker I'm going to find some. Tom studied him with half-shut eyes, and he put on his cap again. Look, he said, this ain't no land of milk and honey like the preachers say. There's a mean thing here. The folks here is scared of people coming west. And so they got cops out, trying to scare us back. Yeah, said Casey. I know. What you ask about me being in jail for? Tom said slowly. When you're in jail, you get to kind of sense and stuff. Guys ain't let to talk a hell of a lot together. Maybe two, but not a crab. And so you get kind of sensey. If something's gonna burst, if, say, a fella's going stirbugs and take a crack at a guard with a mop handle, why, you know it before it happens. And if there's gonna be a break or a riot, nobody don't have to tell you. You're sensey about it, you know? Yeah. Stick around, said Tom. Stick around to tomorrow anyways. Something's gonna come up. I was talking to a kid up the road. And he's been just as sneaky and wise as a dog coyote. But he's too wise. Dog coyote, mind his own business, and innocent and sweet. Just having fun and no harm. Well, there's a hand roost close by. Casey watched him intensely. Started to ask a question, and then shut his mouth tightly. He waggled his toes slowly, and releasing his knees, pushed out his foot so he could see it. Yeah, he said. I won't go right yet. Tom said, when a bunch of folks, nice quiet folks, don't know nothing about nothing, something's going on. I'll stay, said Casey, and tomorrow we'll go out in the truck and look for work. Yeah, said Casey, and he waved his toes up and down and studied them gravely. Tom settled back on his elbow and closed his eyes. Inside the tent, he could hear the murmur of Rose of Sharon's voice and Connie answering. The tarpaulin made a dark shadow, and the wedge-shaped light at each end was hard and sharp. Rose of Sharon lay on a mattress, and Connie squatted beside her. I had to help out Ma, Rose of Sharon said. I tried, but every time I stirred, I throwed up. Connie's eyes were sullen. Come sit down. It wasn't nothing. If I'd a knowed it been like this, I wouldn't have came. I'd a studied nights about tractors back home and got me a three-dollar job. Fella can live awful nice on three dollars a day. I go to the picture show every night, too. Rose of Sharon looked apprehensive. You're going to study nights about radios, she said. He was long in answering. Ain't you? she demanded. Yeah, sure. Soon as I get on my feet, get a little money. She rolled up on her elbows. You ain't giving up? No, 
No, of course not. But I didn't know we got places like this we gotta live in. The girl's eyes hardened. You got to, she said quietly. Sure, sure, I know. Got to get on my feet. Get a little money. Would have been better maybe to stay home and study about tractors. Three dollars a day they get. And pick up some extra money too. Rose of Sharon's eyes were calculating. When he looked down at her, he saw in her eyes a measuring of him. A calculation of him. But I'm going to study too, he said, as soon as I get on my feet. She said fiercely, we got to have a house before the baby comes. We ain't going to have this baby in no tent. Sure, he said, as soon as I get on my feet. He went out of the tent and looked down at Ma, crouched over the bushfire. Rose of Sharon rolled on her back and stared at the top of the tent. And then she put her thumb in her mouth for a gag and cried silently. Ma knelt beside the fire, breaking twigs to keep the flame up under the stew kettle. The children, fifteen of them, stood silently and watched, and when the smell of the cooking stew came into their noses, their noses crinkled slightly. The sunlight glistened on hair, tawny with dust. The children were embarrassed to be there, but they did not go. Ma talked quietly to a little girl who stood inside of the lusting circle. She was older than the rest. She stood on one foot, caressing the back of her leg with a bare instep. Her arms were clasped behind her. She watched Ma with steady, small, grey eyes. She suggested, I could break up some of the brush if you want me to, ma'am. Ma looked up from her work. You want to get us to eat, huh? Yes, ma'am, the girl said steadily. Ma slipped the twigs under the pot, and the flame made a puttering sound. Didn't you have no breakfast? No, ma'am. There ain't no work hereabouts. Pa's trying to sell some stuff to get gas so we can get along. Ma looked up. Didn't none of these here have no breakfast? The circle of children shifted nervously and looked away from the boiling kettle. One small boy said boastfully, I did, me and my brother did, and them two did, cause I seen them. We ate good. We gone south tonight. Ma smiled. Then you ain't hungry. There ain't enough here to go around. The small boy's lip stuck out. We ate good, he said, and he turned and ran and dived into a tent. Ma looked after him so long that the oldest girl reminded her. The fire's down, ma'am. I can keep it up if you want. Ruthie and Winfeld stood inside the circle, comporting themselves with proper frigidity and dignity. They were aloof and at the same time, possessive. Ruthie turned cold and angry eyes on the little girl. Ruthie squatted down to break up twigs for Ma. Ma lifted the kettle and stirred the stew with a stick. I sure am glad some of you ain't hungry. That little feller ain't anyways. The girl sneered. Oh, him? He was a bragging. High and mighty. If he don't have no supper, know what he'd done? Last night, come out and say they got chicken to eat. Well, sir, I looked in whilst they was eating, and it was fried dough, just like everybody else. Oh. And Ma looked down toward the tent where the small boy had gone. She looked back at the little girl. How long you been in California? She asked. Oh, about six months. We lived in a government camp a while, and then went north. And when we got back, it was full up. 
That's a nice place to live, you bet. Where's that? Ma asked. And she took the sticks from Ruthie's hands and fed the fire. Ruthie glared with hatred at the older girl. Over by Weed Patch. Got nice toilets and baths and you can wash clothes in a tub. And there's water right handy. Good drinking water. And nights the folks play music and Saturday they give a dance. Oh, you never seen anything so nice. Got a place the kids will play. And them toilets with paper. Pull down a little jigger and the water comes right in the toilet. And there ain't no cops let to come look through your tent any time they want. And the fellow runs the camp. It's so polite. Comes a-visiting and talks and ain't high and mighty. Wish we could go live there again. Ma said, I never heard about it. I could sure use a wash tub, I tell you. The girl went on excitedly. Why, God almighty, they got hot water right in the pipes. You get under a shower bath and it's warm. You ain't never seen such a place. Ma said, All full now, you say? Yeah, last time we asked it was. Must have cost a lot, said Ma. Well, it costs, but if you ain't got the money, they'll let you work it out. A couple hours a week, cleaning up, garbage cans, stuff like that. And nights, there's music and folks talk together and hot water right in the pipes. You ain't never seen nothing so nice. Ma said, I sure wish we could go there. Ruthie had stood all she could. She blurted out fiercely, Grandma died right on top of the truck. The girl looked questioningly at her. Well, she did, Ruthie said. And the coroner got her. She closed her lips tightly and broke up a pile of sticks. Winfeld blinked at the boldness of the attack. Right on the truck, he echoed. Coroner stuck her in big basket. Ma said, you shush now, both of you, or you got to go away. And she fed the twigs to the fire. Down the line, Owl had strolled to watch the valve grinding job. Looks like you're about through, he said. Two more. Is there any girls in this camp? I got a wife, said the young man. I ain't got no time for girls. I always got time for girls, said Al. I ain't got no time for nothing else. You get a little hungry and you'll change. Al laughed. Maybe, but I ain't never changed that notion yet. Feller I talked to a while ago. He's with you, ain't he? Yeah, my brother Tom. Better not fool with him. He killed a feller. Did? What for? Fight. Fella got a knife in Tom. Tom busted him with a shovel. Did, huh? What'd the law do? Let him off, cause it was a fight, Al said. He didn't look like a quarreler. Oh, he ain't, but Tom don't take nothing from nobody. Al's voice was very proud. Tom, he's quiet, but look out. Well, I talked to him. He didn't sound mean. He ain't. Just as nice as a pie till he's roused. And then look out. The young man ground the lost valve. Let me help you get the valve set and head on? Sure, if you got nothing else to do. Ought to get some sleep, said Al. But here, I can't keep my hands out of a tore-down car. I just gotta get in. Well, I'd admire to get a hand, said the young man. My name's Floyd Knowles. I'm Al Joe. Proud to meet you. Me too, said Al. Gonna use the same gasket? Got to. 
said Floyd. Al took out his pocket knife and scraped at the block. Jesus, he said. They ain't nothing I love like guts of an engine. How about girls? Yeah, I like girls too. Wish I could tear down a rolls and put her in back. I looked under the hood of a CAD 16 one time and, God almighty, you ain't seen nothing so sweet in your life. In Salisaw, there's this 16 standing in front of a restaurant. So I lifts the hood and guy comes out and says, what the hell are you doing? I says, just looking. Ain't she swell? And just stands there. I don't think he ever looked in her before. Just stands there. Rich fella in a straw hat. Got a striped shirt on and eyeglasses. We don't say nothing. Just look. And pretty soon he says, how'd you like to drive her? Floyd says, the hell? Sure, how'd you like to drive her? Well, hell, I got on jeans all dirty, I says. I get her dirty. Come on, he says. Just take her around the block. Well, sir, I sat in that seat and I took her around the block eight times. Oh my God almighty. Nice, Floyd asked. Oh, Jesus, said Al. If I could have tore her down, why, I'd give anything. Floyd slowed his jerking arm. He lifted the lost valve from its seat and looked at it. You better get used to a jalopy, he says, because you ain't going to drive no 16. He put his brace down on the running board and took up a chisel to scrape the crust from the block. Two stocky women, bareheaded and barefooted, went by, carrying a bucket of milky water between them. They limped against the weight of the bucket, and neither one looked up from the ground. The sun was half down in the afternoon. Al said, You don't like nothing much. Al scraped harder with the chisel. I've been here six months, he says. I've been scrabbling all over this here state, trying to work hard enough, and to move fast enough, to get meat and potatoes for me and my wife and my kids. I've run myself like a jackrabbit, and I can't quite make her. There just ain't quite enough meat, no matter what I do. I'm getting tired, that's all. I'm getting tired way past where sleep rests me. And I just don't know what to do. Ain't there no steady work for a fella? I lost. Nope, there ain't no steady work. With his chisel, he pushed the crust off the block, and he wiped the dull metal with a greasy rag. A rusty touring car drove down into the camp, and there were four men in it. Men with brown hard faces. The car drove slowly through the camp. Floyd called to meet them. Any luck? The car stopped. The driver said, We cover a hell of a lot of ground. There ain't a hand's work in this here country. We gotta move. Where to? God knows. I worked this here place over. He let in his clutch and moved slowly down the camp. Al looked after them. Wouldn't it be better off if one fellow went alone? Then, if there was one piece of work, a fellow'd get it. Floyd put down the chisel and smiled sourly. You ain't learned, he said. Takes gas getting around the country. Gas costs 15 cents a gallon. Them four fellas can't take four cars. So each of them puts in a dime and they get gas. Got to learn. Al? I looked down at Winfeld, standing importantly beside him. Al? Ma's dishing up stew. She says, come get it. Al wiped his hands on his trousers. We ain't here today, he said to Floyd. I'll come give you a hand when I eat. No need lest you want to. Sure, I'll do it. 
he followed Winfeld towards the Jode camp. It was crowded now, and the strange children stood close to the stewpot, so close that Mark brushed them with her elbows as she worked. Tom and Uncle John stood beside her. Ma said helplessly, I don't know what to do. I got to feed the family. What am I going to do with these here? The children stood stiffly and looked at her. Their faces were blank, rigid, and their eyes went mechanically from the pot to the tin plate she held. Their eyes followed the spoon from pot to plate, and when she passed the steaming plate up to Uncle John, their eyes followed it up. Uncle John dug his spoon in the stew, and the blank eyes rose up with the spoon. A piece of potato went into John's mouth, and the banked eyes were on his face, watching to see how he would react. Would it be good? Would he like it? And then Uncle John seemed to see them for the first time. He chewed slowly. You take this here, he said to Tom. I ain't hungry. You ain't it today, Tom said. I know, but I got a stomachache. I ain't hungry. Tom said quietly, You take that plate inside the tent and you eat it. I I ain't hungry, John insisted. I'd see them inside the tent. Tom turned on the children. You get, he said. Go on, get. The blank eyes left the stew and rested, wandering on his face. Go on, get. You ain't doing no good. There ain't enough for you. Ma ladled the stew into the tin plates, very little stew, and she laid the plates on the ground. I can't send them away, she said. I don't know what to do. Take your plates and go inside. I'll have what's left. Here, take a plate into Rosa Sharn. She smiled up at the children. Look, she said, you little fellas, go on and get you each a flat stick. Now put what's left for you. But there ain't to be no fighting. The group broke up with deadly, silent swiftness. Children ran to find sticks. They ran to their own tents and brought spoons. Before Ma had finished with the plates, they were back, silent and wolfish. Ma shook her head. I don't know what to do. I can't rob the family. I got to feed the family. Ruthie, Winfield, Al, she cried fiercely. Take your plates. Hurry up, get in the tent. She looked apologetically at the waiting children. There ain't enough, she said humbly. I'm going to set this here kettle out and you'll get a little taste, but it ain't going to do you no good. She faltered. I can't help it. Can't keep it from you. She lifted the pot and set it down on the ground. Now wait, it's too hot, she said. And she went into the tent quickly so that she would not see. Her family sat on the ground each with his plate, and outside they could hear the children digging into the pot with their sticks and their spoons and their pieces of rusty tin. A mound of children smothered the pot from sight. They did not talk, did not fight or argue, but there was a quiet intentness in all of them, a wooden fierceness. Ma turned her back so she couldn't see. We can't do that no more, she said. We got to eat alone. There was a sound of scraping at the kettle, and then the mound of children broke, and the children walked away, and left the scraped kettle on the ground. Ma looked at the empty plates. Didn't none of you get nowhere near enough? Pa got up, and left the tent without answering. The preacher smiled to himself, and lay back on the ground, 
hands clasped behind his head. Al got to his feet. Got to help a fellow with a car. Ma gathered the plates and took them outside to wash. Ruthie, she called. Winfield, get me a bucket of water right off. She handed them the bucket and they trudged off toward the river. A strong, broad woman walked near. Her dress was streaked with dust and splotched with car oil. Her chin was held high with pride. She stood a short distance away and regarded Ma belligerently. At last she approached. Afternoon, she said coldly. Afternoon, said Ma, and she got up from her knees and pushed a box forward. Won't you sit down? The woman walked near. No, I won't sit down. Ma looked up, questioning at her. Can I help you in any way? The woman set her hands on her hips. You can help me by minding your own children and letting mine alone. Ma's eyes opened wide. I ain't done nothing, she began. The woman scowled at her. My little fella come back smelling a stew, and you give it to him. He told me. Don't you go boasting or bragging about having stew. Don't you do it. I got enough troubles without that. Come in to me, he did, and says, why don't we have stew? Her voice shook with fury. Ma moved close. Sit down, she said. Sit down and talk a piece. No, I ain't gonna sit down. I'm trying to feed my folks, and you come along with your stew. Sit down, Ma said. That was about the last stew we're gonna have till we get work. Suppose you was cooking a stew and a bunch of little fellas stood around moon. what do you do? We didn't have enough, but you can't keep it when they look at you like that. The woman's hands dropped from her hips. For a moment, her eyes questioned Ma, and then she turned and walked quickly away, and she went to the tent and pulled the flaps down behind her. Ma stared after her, and then she dropped to her knees again beside the sack of tin dishes. Al hurried near. Tom, he called. Ma, is Tom inside? Tom stuck his head out. What do you want? Come on, with me, Al said excitedly. They walked away together. What's the matter with you? Tom asked. You'll find out. Just wait. He led Tom to the torn-down car. This here's Floyd Knowles, he said. Yeah, I talked to him. How are you? Just getting her in shape, Floyd said. Tom ran his finger over the top of the block. What kind of bug is crawling on you, Al? Floyd just told me. Tell him, Floyd. Floyd said. Maybe I shouldn't, but... Yeah, I'll tell you. Fella come through and he says there's gonna be work up north. Up north? Yeah, a place called Santa Clara Valley. Way to hell and gone up north. Yeah? Kind of work? Prune picking and pears and cannery work. Says it's pretty near ready. How far? Tom demanded. Oh, Christ knows. Maybe 200 miles? That's a hell of a long way, said Tom. How do we know there's going to be work there when we get there? Well, we don't know, said Floyd. But there ain't nothing here, and this fella says he got a letter from his brother, and he's on his way. He says not to tell nobody. There'll be too many. We ought to get out tonight. Ought to get there and get some work lined up. Tom studied him. Why are we going to sneak away? Well, if everybody gets there, there ain't going to be work for nobody. It's a hell of a long ways. Tom said. Floyd sounded hurt, 
I'm just giving you the tip. You don't have to take it. Your brother here helped me. I'm giving you the tip. You sure there ain't no work here? Look, I've been scouting around for three weeks over all hell. I ain't had a bit of work, not a single handhold. If you want to look around, burn up gas looking, why go ahead. I ain't begging you. More that goes, less chance I got. Tom said, I ain't finding fault, it's just such a hell of a long ways, and we can't hope we could get work here and rent a house to live in. Floyd said patiently, I know you just got here. There's stuff you gotta learn. If you'd let me tell you, it'd save you something. If you don't let me tell you, then you gotta learn the hard way. You ain't gonna settle down, cause there ain't no work to settle you. And your belly ain't gonna let you settle down. Now, let's strike. Wished I could look around first, Tom said uneasily. A sedan drove through the camp, then pulled up at the next tent. A man in overalls and a blue shirt climbed out. Floyd called to him. Any luck? There ain't a hand turn of work in the whole darn country. Not till cotton picking. And he went into the ragged tent. See? said Floyd. Yeah, I see, but two hundred miles. Jesus. Well, you ain't settling down no place for a while. Might as well make up your mind to do that. We better go, Al said. Tom asked, when is there going to be work around here? Well, in a month the cotton will start. If you got plenty of money, you can wait for the cotton. Tom said, Ma ain't going to want to move. She's all tired out. Floyd shrugged his shoulders. I ain't trying to push you north. Suit yourself. I just told you what I heard. He picked the oily gasket from the running board and fitted it carefully on the block and pressed it down. Now, he said to Al, if you want to give me a hand with that engine head. Tom watched while they set the heavy head down over the head bolts and dropped it evenly. You have to talk about it, he said. Floyd said, I don't want nobody but your folks to know about it. Just you. And I wouldn't have told you if your brother didn't help me out here. Tom said, well, I sure thank you for telling us. We gotta figure it out. Maybe we'll go. Al said, by God, I think I'll go if the rest goes or not. I'll hitch there. And leave the family? Tom asked. Sure, I come back and my jeans plumb full of jack. Why not? Ma ain't gonna like no such thing, said Tom. And Pa, he ain't gonna like it neither. Floyd set the nuts and screwed them down as far as he could with his fingers. Me and my wife come out with our folks, he said. Back home, we wouldn't have thought going away. Wouldn't have thought of it. But hell, we was all up north of peace and I come down here, and they moved on, and now, God knows where they are. Been looking and asking about them ever since. He fitted his wrench to the engine head bolts and turned them down evenly. One turn each nut, around and around the series. Tom squatted down beside the car and squinted his eyes up the line of tents. A little stubble was beaten into the earth between the tents. Now, sir, he said, mine gon' like you going off. Seems to me, a lone fella got more chance of work. Maybe, but mine gone lack it at all. Two cars loaded with disconsolate men drove down into the camp. Floyd lifted his eyes, but he didn't ask them about their luck. Their dusty faces were sad and resistant. The sun was sinking now, and the yellow sunlight fell on the Hooverville and on the willows behind it. The children began to come out of the tents, 
to wander about the camp, and from the tents the women came and built their little fires. The men gathered in the squatting groups and talked together. A new Chevrolet coupe turned off the highway and headed down into the camp. It was pulled into the centre of the camp. Tom said, Who's this? They don't belong here. Floyd says, I don't know, cops maybe. The car door opened, and a man got out and stood beside the car. His companion remained seated. Now all the squatting men looked at the newcomers, and the conversation was still, and the women, building their fires, looked secretly at the shiny car. The children moved closer with elaborate circuitousness, edging inward along the curves. Floyd put down his wrench. Tom stood up. Al wiped his hands on his trousers. The three strolled towards the Chevrolet. The man who had got out of the car was dressed in khaki trousers and a flannel shirt. He wore a flat-brimmed Stetson hat. A sheath of papers was held in his shirt pocket by a little fence of fountain pens and yellow pencils and from his hip pocket protruded a notebook with metal covers. He moved to one of the groups of squatting men, and they looked up at him, suspicious and quiet. They watched him, and did not move. The whites of their eyes shoved beneath the irises, for they did not raise their heads to look. Tom, Al, and Floyd strolled casually near. The man said, You men want to work? They looked quietly, suspiciously, and men from all over the camp moved near. One of the squatting men spoke last. Sure, we want to work. Where's that? Work. Tulare County. Fruit's opening up. Need a lot of pickers. Floyd spoke up. You doing the hiring? Well, I'm contracting the land. The men were in a compact group now. An overalled man took off his black hat and combed back his long hair with his fingers. What are you paying? he asked. Well, I can't tell exactly yet. About thirty cents, I guess. Why can't you tell? You took the contract, didn't you? That's true, the cocky man said. But it's key to the price. Might be a little more, might be a little less. Floyd stepped out ahead. He said quietly, I'll go, mister. You're a contractor, and you got the license. You just show your license, and then you give an order to work, and where, and when, and how much we'll get, and you sign that, and we'll all go. The contractor turned, scowling. Telling me how to run my own business? Floyd said, if we're working for you, it's our business too. Well, you ain't telling me what to do. I told you I need men. Floyd said angrily, you didn't say how many men, and you didn't say what you'd pay. God damn it, I don't know yet. If you don't know, you ain't got no right to hire men. I got a right to run my own business my own way. If you men want to sit her on your ass, okay. I'm out getting men for Tulare County. Going to need a lot of men. Floyd turned to the crowd of men. They were standing up now, looking quietly from one speaker to the other. Floyd said, Twice now I fell for that. Maybe he needs a thousand men. He'll get five thousand there, and he'll pay fifteen cents an hour and you poor bastards have to take it, because you'll be hungry. If he wants to hire a man, let him hire him, and write it out, and say what he's going to pay. Ask to see his license. He ain't allowed to hire men without a license. The contractor turned towards the Chevrolet and called, Joe! His companion looked out, and then swung the car door open and stepped out. 
He wore riding breeches and laced boots, a heavy pistol holster swung on a cartridge belt around his waist. On his brown shirt, a deputy sheriff's star was pinned. He walked heavily over. His face was set to a thin smile. What you want? The holster slid back and forth on the hip. Ever see this guy before, Joe? The deputy sheriff asked. Which one? This fella. The contractor pointed to Floyd. What'd he do? The deputy smiled at Floyd. He's talking red. Agitating trouble. Hmm. The deputy moved slowly round to see Floyd's profile, and the colour slowly flowed up Floyd's face. You see? Floyd cried. If this guy's on the level, would he bring a cop along? Ever see him before? The contractor insisted. Hmm. Seems like I have. Last week, when that used car lot was busted into. Seems like this fella's hanging round. Yep, I'd swear it's the same fella. Suddenly, the smile left his face. Get in that car, he said, and he unlocked the strap that covered the butt of his automatic. Tom said, You got nothing on him! The deputy swung round. If you'd like to go too, you'd just open your trap up once more. There was two fellas hanging around that lot. I wasn't even in state last week, Tom said. Well, maybe you were wanted someplace else. You keep your trap shut. The contractor turned back to the men. You fellas don't want to listen to the goddamn Reds. Troublemakers. They'll get you in trouble. Now I can use all of you in Tulare County. The men didn't answer. The deputy turned back to them. Might be a good idea to go, he said. The thin smile was back on his face. Board of Health says we gotta clean out this camp. And if it gets around that you got reds here, why... Somebody might get hurt. Be a good idea if you fellas moved on to Tulare. There isn't a thing to do around here. That's just a friendly way of telling you. Be a bunch of guys down here, maybe with pick handles if you ain't gone. The contractor said, I told you I need men. If you don't want to work, well, that's your business. The deputy smiled. If they don't want to work, there ain't a place for them in this county. We'll float them quick. Floyd stood stiffly beside the deputy, and Floyd's thumbs were hooked over his belt. Tom stole a look at him, and then stared at the ground. That's all, the contractor said. There's men needed in Tulare County. Plenty of work. Tom looked up, slowly, at Floyd's hands, and he saw the strings at the wrist standing out under the skin. Tom's own hands came up, and his thumbs hooked over his belt. Yeah, that's all. I don't want one of you here by tomorrow morning. The contractor stepped into the Chevrolet. Now you, the deputy said to Floyd. You get in that car. He reached a large hand up to hook Floyd's left arm. Floyd spun and swung with one movement. His fist splashed into the large face, and in the same motion he was away, dodging down the line of tents. The deputy staggered, and Tom put out his foot for him to trip over. The deputy fell, heavily, and rolled, reaching for his gun. Floyd dodged in and out of sight down the line. The deputy fired from the ground. A woman in front of a tent screamed, and then looked at a hand which had no knuckles. The fingers hung on strings against her palm, and the torn flesh was white and bloodless. Far down the line, Floyd came in sight, sprinting for the willows. The deputy, sitting on the ground, raised his gun again 
And then, suddenly, from the group of men, the Reverend Casey stepped. He kicked the deputy in the neck, and then stood back as the heavy man crumpled into unconsciousness. The motor of the Chevrolet roared and it streaked away, churning in the dust. It mounted to the highway and shot away. In front of her tent, the woman still looked at her shattered hand. Little droplets of blood began to ooze from the wound, and a chuckling hysteria began in her throat, a whining laugh that grew louder and higher with each breath. The deputy lay on his side, his mouth open against the dust. Tom picked up his automatic, pulled out the magazine, and threw it into the brush. And he ejected the live shell from the chamber. Fella like that ain't got no right to a gun, he said, and he dropped the automatic on the ground. A crowd had collected around the woman with the broken hand, and her hysteria increased. A screaming quality came into her laughter. Casey moved close to Tom. You got to get out, he said. You go down in the willers and wait. He didn't see me kick him, but he see you stick your foot out. I don't want to go, Tom said. Casey had put his head close. He whispered, they'll fingerprint you. You brought parole. They'll send you back. Tom drew his breath quietly. Jesus, I forgot. Quick, go, Casey said, before he comes too. I'd like to have his gun, Tom said. No, leave it. If it's alright to come back, I'll give you four high whistles. Tom strolled away, casually, but as soon as he was away from the group, he hurried his steps, and he disappeared among the willows that lined the river. Al stepped over to the fallen deputy. Jesus, he said admiringly. You sure flagged him down. The crowd of men had continued to stare at the unconscious man, and now, in the great distance, a siren screamed up the scale and dropped, and then it screamed again, nearer this time. Instantly, the men were nervous. They shifted their feet for a moment, and then they moved away, each one to his own tent. Only Al and the preacher remained. Casey turned to Al. Get out, he said. Go on, get out to the tent. You don't know nothing. Yeah, how about you? Casey grinned at him. Somebody got to take the blame. I got no kids. They'll just put me in jail. I ain't do nothing but sit around. Al said, Ain't, ain't no reason for... Go on now, Casey said sharply. You get out of this. Al bristled. I ain't taking no orders. Casey said softly. If you're messing this, your whole family, all your folks gonna get in trouble. I don't care about you, but your ma and pa, they'll get in trouble. Maybe they'll send Tom back to McAllister. Al considered for a moment. Okay, he said. I think you're a damn fool, though. Sure, said Casey. Why not? The siren screamed again and again, and it always came closer. Casey knelt beside the deputy and turned him over. The man groaned and fluttered his eyes, and he tried to see. Casey wiped the dust off his lips. The families were in the tents now, and the flaps were down, and the setting sun made the air red and the grey tents bronze. Tyres squealed on the highway, and an open car came swiftly into the camp. Four men, armed with rifles, piled out. Casey stood up and walked to them. What the hell's going on here? Casey said, I knocked out your man there. One of the armed men went to the deputy. He was conscious now, 
trying weakly to sit up. What happened here? Well, Casey said. He got tough, and I hit him, and he started shooting, hit a woman down the line. So I hit him again. Well, what did you do in the first place? I talked back, said Casey. Get in that car. Sure, said Casey, and he climbed into the back seat and sat down. Two men helped the hurt deputy to his feet. He felt his neck gingerly. Casey said, There's a woman down the road like to bleed to death from this bad shooting. We'll see about that later. Mike, is this the fellow that hit you? The dazed man stared sickly at Casey. Don't look like him. It was me, all right, said Casey. You got smart with the wrong fella. Mike shook his head slowly. You don't look like the right fella to me. By God, I'm going to be sick. Casey said, I'll go, without no trouble. You better see how bad that woman's hurt. Where's she? That tent over there. The leader of the deputies walked to the tent, rifle in hand. He spoke through the tent walls and went inside. In a moment, he came out and walked back. And he said, a little proudly, Jesus, what a mess a 45 does make. They got a tourniquet on. We'll send a doctor out. Two deputies sat on either side of Casey. The leader sounded his horn. There was no movement in the camp. The flaps were down tight and the people in their tents. The engine started and the car swung around and pulled out of the camp. Between his guards, Casey sat proudly, his head up and the stringy muscles of his neck prominent. On his lips, there was a faint smile and on his face, a curious look of conquest. When the deputies had gone, the people came out of the tents. The sun was down now, and the gentle blue evening light was in the camp. To the east, the mountains were still yellow with sunlight. The women went back to the fires that had died. The men collected to squat together and talk softly. Al crawled from under the jode tarpaulin and walked towards the willow to whistle for Tom. Ma came out and built her little fire of twigs. Pa, she said, we ain't going to have much. We ate so late. Pa and Uncle John stuck close to the camp, watching Ma peeling potatoes and slicing them raw into a frying pan of deep grease. Pa said, now what in the hell made the preacher do that? Ruthie and Winfeld crept close and crouched down to hear the talk. Uncle John scratched the earth deeply with a long, rusty nail. They wasn't going bad at all. He knowed about sin. I asked him about sin, and he told me. But I don't know if he's right. He says a fella sinned if he thinks he's sinned. Uncle John's eyes were tired and sad. I've been secret all my days, he said. I've done things I never told about. Ma turned from the fire. Don't go telling, John she said. Tell him to God, don't go burdening other people with your sins. That ain't decent. They're eating on me, said John. Well, don't tell him. Go down the river and stick your head under and whisper into the stream. Pa nodded his head slowly at Ma's words. She's right, he said. It gives a fellow relief to tell, but it just spreads out his seeing. Uncle John looked up to the sun-gold mountains and the mountains were reflected in his eyes. 
I wished I could run it down, he said, but I can't. She's a baton in my girts. Behind him, Rose of Sharon moved dizzily out of the tent. Where's Carney? she asked irritably. I ain't seen Carney for a long time. Where'd he go? I ain't seen him, said Ma. If I see him, I'll tell him you want him. I ain't feeling good, said Rose of Sharon. Carney shouldn't have left me. Ma looked up to the girl's swollen face. You've been a-crying, she said. The tears started freshly in Rose of Sharon's eyes. Ma went on firmly. You get a hold yourself. There's a lot of us here. You get a hold yourself. Come here now and peel some potatoes. You're feeling sorry for yourself. The girl started to go back in the tent. She tried to avoid Ma's stern eyes, but they compelled her, and she came slowly toward the fire. He shouldn't have went away, she said, but the tears were gone. You got to work, Ma said. Set in the tent, and you get feeling sorry about yourself. I ain't had time to take you in hand. I will now. Take this here knife, and get to them potatoes. The girl knelt down and obeyed. She said fiercely, Wait till I see him. I'll tell him. Ma smiled slowly. He might smack you. You got it coming, winding round and candying yourself. If he smacks some sense into you, I'll bless him. The girl's eyes blazed with resentment, but she was silent. Uncle John pushed his rusty nail deep in the ground with his broad thumb. I got to tell, he said. Pa said, well then tell, goddammit, who'd you kill? Uncle John dug with his thumb into the watch pocket of his blue jeans and scooped out a folded, dirty bill. He spread it out and showed it. Five dollars he said. Staler? Pa asked. No, I had her. Kept her out. She was yourn, wasn't she? Yeah, but I didn't have no right to keep her out. I don't see much sin in that, Ma said. It's yourn. Uncle John said slowly, It ain't only keeping her out. I kept her out to get drunk. I know there was going to come a time when I get drunk, when I was hurting inside. So I got to get drunk. Figured Tom wasn't yet. And then the preacher went and gave himself up to save Tom. Pa nodded his head up and down and cocked his head to hear. Ruthie moved closer, like a puppy crawling on her elbows, and Winfeld followed her. Rose of Sharon dug at a deep eye in a potato with the point of her knife. The evening light deepened and became more blue. Ma said in a sharp, matter-of-fact tone. I don't see why him saving Tom gotta get you drunk. John said sadly. Can't say her. I feel awful. He done her so easy. Just step up there and says, I done her. And they took him away. And I'm gonna get drunk. Pa nodded his head. I don't see why you got a tail, he said. If it was me, I'd just go off and get drunk if I had to. Come a time when I could did something and took a big sin off my soul, Uncle John said sadly, and I slipped up. I didn't jump on her, and she got away. Looky, he said. You got the money. Give me two dollars. 
Pa reached reluctantly into his pocket and brought out the leather pouch. You ain't gonna need seven dollars to get drunk. You don't need to drink no champagne water. Uncle John held out his bill. You take her here and give me two dollars, and I can get good and drunk for two dollars. I don't want no sin of waste on me. I'll spend whatever I got. I always do. Pa took the dirty bill and gave Uncle John two silver dollars. There you are, he said. A fella gotta do what he gotta do. Nobody don't know enough to tell him. Uncle John took the coins. You ain't gonna be mad. You know I got to. Christ, yes," said Pa. "You know what you gotta do." I wouldn't be able to get through this night no other way," he said. He turned to Ma. "You ain't gonna hold her over me." Ma didn't look up. "No," she said softly. "No." You go along. He stood up and walked forlornly away in the evening. He walked up to the concrete highway and across the pavement to the grocery store. In front of the screen door, he took off his hat, dropped it in the dust, and ground it with his heel in self-abasement. And he left his black hat there, broken and dirty. He entered the store and walked to the shelves where the whiskey bottles stood behind wire netting. Pa and Ma and the children watched Uncle John move away. Rosa Sharon kept her eyes resentfully on the potatoes. Poor John, Ma said. I wondered if it would have done any good. No, I guess not. I never seen a man so drove. Ruthie turned on her side in the dust. She put her head close to Winfield's head and pulled his ears against her mouth. She whispered. I'm gonna get drunk. Winfeld snorted and pinched his mouth tight. The two children crawled away, holding their breath, their faces purple with the pressure of their giggles. They crawled around the tent and leapt up and ran, squealing away from the tent. They ran to the willows and, once concealed, they shrieked with laughter. Ruthie crossed her eyes and loosened her joints. She staggered about, tripping loosely with her tongue hanging out. I'm drunk. She said, "Look!" Winfeld cried. "Look at me! Here's me, and I'm Uncle Joe." He flapped his arms and puffed. He whirled until he was dizzy. "No," said Ruthie. "Here's the way. I'm Uncle John. I'm awful drunk." Al and Tom walked quietly through the willows, and they came on the children staggering crazily about. The dusk was thick now. Tom stopped and peered. "Ain't that Ruthie and Winfield?" What the hell's the matter with them? They walked nearer. You crazy? Tom asked. The children stopped, embarrassed. We was just playing, Ruthie said. It's a crazy way to play, said Al. Ruthie said pertly, "It ain't no crazier than a lot of things." Al walked on. He said to Tom, "Ruthie's working up a kick in the pants. She's been working it up a long time. That do for it." Ruthie mushed her face at his back, pulled out her mouth with her forefingers, slobbered her tongue at him, outraged in every way she knew. But Al did not turn back to look at her. She looked at Winfield again to start the game, but it had been spoiled. They both knew. Let's go down the water and duck our heads, Winfield suggested. They walked down through the willows, and they were angry at Al. 
Owl and Tom went quietly in the dusk. Tom said, Casey shouldn't have did it. I might have knew, though. He was talking how he ain't done nothing for us. He's a funny fella, Al. All the time thinking. It comes from being a preacher, Al said. They get all messed up with that stuff. Where do you suppose Connie was going? Gonna take a crap, I guess. Well, he was going a hell of a long way. They walked among the tents, keeping close to the walls. At Floyd's tent, a soft hail stopped them. They came near to the tent flap and squatted down. Floyd raised the canvas a little. You getting out? Tom said, I don't know, think we better? Floyd laughed sourly. You heard what that bull said? They'll burn you if you don't. If you think that guy's gonna take a beating without getting back, you're nuts. The pool room boys will be down here tonight burn us out. Guess we better get then, said Tom. Where are you gone? Why, up north, like I said. I said, look, a fella told me about a government camp near here. Where's it at? Oh, I think that's full up. Well, where's it at? Go south on 99, about 12, 14 miles, and turn east to Weed Patch. It's right near there, but I think she's full up. Fella says it's nice. Al said, sure, she's nice. Treat like a man instead of a dog. Ain't no cops there, but she's full up. Tom said, what I can't understand, why a cop was so mean. Seemed like he was aiming for trouble. Seems like he's poking a fella to make trouble. Floyd said, I don't know about here, but up north, I knowed one of them fellas, and he was a nice fella. He told me up there, the deputy's got to take guys in. Sheriff gets 75 cents a day for each prisoner, and he feeds them for a quarter. If he ain't got prisoners, he don't make no profit. This fella says he didn't pick up nobody for a week, and the sheriff told him he better bring in guys or give up his button. This fella today sure looks like he's out to make a pinch one way or another. We gotta get on, said Tom. So long, Floyd. So long. Probably see ya. Hope so. Goodbye, said Al. They walked through the dark grey camp to the geode tent. The frying pan of potatoes was hissing and spitting over the fire. Ma moved the thick slices about with a spoon. Pa sat nearby, hugging his knees. Rose of Sharon was sitting under the tarpaulin. It's Tom! Ma cried. Thank God! We gotta get out of here, said Tom. What's the matter now? Well, Floyd says they'll burn up the camp tonight. What the hell for? Pa asked. We ain't done nothing. Nothing except beat up a cop, said Tom. Well, we never done it. From what that cop said, they want to push us along. Rose of Sharon demanded. You seen Connie? Yeah, said Al. Way to hell gone up the river. He's gone south. Was, was he going away? I don't know. Ma turned on the girl. Rosa Sharn, you've been talking and acting funny. What can he say to you? Rosa Sharon said suddenly, Connie said it would have been a good thing if he stayed home and studied tractors. They were very quiet. Rosa Sharon looked at the fire, and her eyes glistened in the firelight. The potatoes hissed sharply in the frying pan. The girl sniffled and wiped her nose with the back of her hand. Pa said, Connie wasn't no good. I seen that a long time. 
Didn't have no guts. Just too big for his overalls. Rose of Sharon got up and went to the tent. She lay down on the mattress and rolled over on her stomach and buried her head in crossed arms. Wouldn't do no good to catch him, I guess, Al said. Pa replied, no, if he ain't no good, we don't want him. Ma looked into the tent, where Rose of Sharon lay on her mattress. Ma said, shh, don't say that. Well, he ain't no good, Pa insisted, all the time saying what he's gonna do. Never doing nothing. I didn't want to say nothing while he's here, but now he's run out. Shh, Ma said softly. Why, for Christ's sakes, why do I get a shush? He run out, didn't he? Ma turned over the potatoes with her spoon, and the grease boiled and spat. She fed twigs to the fire, and the flames laced up and lighted the tent. Ma said, Rosa Shaw gonna have a baby, and that little feller is half carny. It ain't good for a baby to grow up, folks saying his pa wasn't no good. Better than lying about it, said Pa. No, it ain't. Moore interrupted. Make out like he's dead. Wouldn't say no bad things about Connie if he's dead. Tom broke in. Hey, what is this? We ain't sure Connie's gone for good. We got no time for talking. We gotta eat and get our way. On our way? We just come here. Ma peered at him through the fire-lighted darkness. He explained carefully. They're gonna burn up the camp tonight, Ma. Now, you know I ain't got it in me to stand by and see our stuff burn up. Nor Pa ain't got it in him. Nor Uncle John. We'd come up fighting, and I just can't afford to be took in and mugged. I never got it today if the preacher hadn't jumped in. Ma had been turning the frying potatoes in the hot grease. Now she took her decision. Come on, she cried. Let's eat this stuff. We gotta go quick. She set out the tin plates. Pa said, how about John? Where's Uncle John? Tom asked. Pa and Ma were silent for a moment. Then Pa said, He went to get drunk. Jesus! Tom said, What a time he picked out! Where'd he go? I don't know, said Pa. Tom stood up. Look, he said, You all eat and get the stuff loaded, and I'll go look for Uncle John. He'd went to the store across the road. Tom walked quickly away. The little cooking fires burned in front of the tents and the shacks, and the light fell on the faces of ragged men and women, on crouched children. In a few tents, the light of kerosene lamps shone through the canvas and placed a shadow of people hugely on the cloth. Tom walked up the dusty road and crossed the concrete highway to the little grocery store. He stood in front of the screen door and looked in. The proprietor, a little grey man, with an unkept moustache and watery eyes, leaned on the counter reading a newspaper. His thin arms were bare, and he wore a long white apron. Heaped around and in the back of him were mounds, pyramids, walls of canned goods. He looked up when Tom came in, and his eyes narrowed as though he aimed a shotgun. Good evening, he said. Run out of something? Run out of my uncle, said Tom, or he run out, or summon. The grey man looked puzzled and worried at the same time. He touched the top of his nose tenderly and waggled it around to stop an itch. Seems like you people always lost somebody, he said. Ten times a day or more, 
Someone comes in here and says, If you see a man named so-and-so and looks like so-and-so, will you tell him we went up north? Something like that. All the time. Tom laughed. Well, if you see a young snap-nose named Connie, looks a bit like a coyote, tell him to go to hell. We've went south, but he ain't a feller I'm looking for. Did a fella about 60 years old, black pants, sort of grayish hair, come in here and get some whiskey? The eyes of the man brightened. Now sure did. I had never seen anything like it. He stood out front, and he dropped his hat, and stepped on it. Here, I got his hat here. He brought out the dusty, broken hat from under the counter. Tom took it from him. That's him, all right. Well, sir, he got a couple of pints of whiskey, and didn't say a thing. He pulled the cork and tipped out the bottle. I ain't got a license to drink here. I says, look, you can't drink here. You gotta go outside. Well, sir, he just stepped outside the door, and I bet he didn't tilt up that pint more than four times till it was empty. He throwed it away and leaned in the door. Ice kind of dull. He says, thank you, sir, and he went on. I never seen no drinking like that in my life. Went on? Which way? I gotta get him. Well, so happens, I can tell you. I never seen such drinking, so I looked out after him. He went north, and then a car come along and lighted him up, and he went down to the bank. Legs was beginning to buckle a little. He got the other pine already open. He won't be far, not the way he was going. Tom said, thank you, I gotta find him. You want to take his hat? Uh, yeah, yeah, he'll need it. Well, thank you. What's the matter with him? The grey man asked. He wasn't taking pleasure in his drink. Oh, he's kinda moody. Well, good night, and if you see a squirt Connie, tell him we went south. I got so many people to look out for and tell stuff to, I can't even remember them all. Don't put yourself out too much, Tom said. He went out the screen door, carrying Uncle John's dusty black hat. He crossed the concrete road and walked along the edge of it. Below him, in the sunken field, the Hooverville lay, and the little fires flickered and the lanterns shone through the tents. Somewhere up in the camp, a guitar sounded. Slow chords struck without any sequence. Practice chords. Tom stopped and listened, and then he moved slowly along the side of the road, and every few steps he stopped to listen again. He had gone about a quarter of a mile before he heard what he listened for. Down below the embankment, the sound of a thick, tuneless voice singing drably. Tom cocked his head, the better to hear and a dull voice sang, I give my heart to Jesus, Jesus tight. May home, I give my soul to Jesus, so Jesus tight. May home. The song trailed off to a murmur, and then stopped. Tom hurried down from the embankment towards the song, After a while, he stopped and listened again, and the voice was close this time. The same slow, tuneless singing, Oh, not that Maggie died, and she called me to her side, and give to me them old red flannel drawers that Maggie wore. They was baggy at the knee. Tom moved cautiously forward. He saw the black form sitting on the ground. 
and he stole near and sat down. Uncle John tilted the pint, and the liquor gurgled out of the neck of the bottle. Hey, wait, where do I come in? Uncle John turned his head. Who, you? You forgot me already? You had four drinks to my one. Nope, Tom, don't. Try to pull me. I'm alone here. You uh, ain't been near. Well, I'm sure here now. How about giving me a snort? Uncle John raised the pint again, and the whiskey gurgled. He shook the bottle. It was empty. No, no more, he said. Want to die so bad? Want to die awful? Die a little bit? Got to like, like sleeping. Die a little bit. So tired. Tired. Maybe don't wake up no more. His voice crooned off. Gotta wear a crown. A golden crown. Tom said, Listen here to me, Uncle John. We're gonna move on. You come along and you can go right to sleep on the low. John shook his head. No. Go on, I ain't going. Gonna rest here. No good gone back. No good to nobody just dragging my sins like dirty drawers amongst nice folks. No, I ain't going. Come on, we can't go unless you go. Go right long. I ain't no good. I never no good. I just dragging my sins and dirtying everybody. You got no more sins than anybody else. John put his head close, and he winked one eye wisely. Tom could see his face dimly in the starlight. Nobody don't know my sins. Nobody but Jesus. He, he, He knows. Tom got down on his knees. He put his hand on Uncle John's forehead, and it was hot and dry. John brushed his hand away, clumsily. Come on, Tom pleaded. Come on now, Uncle John. I ain't gone go. Just tired. Gone rest right here. Right here. Tom was very close. He put his fist against the point of Uncle John's chin. He made a small practice arc twice for distance, and then with his shoulder in the swing, He hit the chin, a delicate, perfect blow. John's chin snapped up and he fell backwards and he tried to sit up again. But Tom was kneeling over him. And as John got to one elbow, Tom hit him again. Uncle John lay still on the ground. Tom stood up and, bending, he lifted the loose sagging body and boosted it over his shoulder. He staggered under the loose weight. John's hanging hands tapped him on the back as he went, slowly, puffing up the bank to the highway. Once, a car came by and lighted him with the limp man over his shoulder. The car slowed for a moment, and then roared away. Tom was panting when he came back to the Hooverville and down from the road into the truck. John was coming too. He struggled weakly. Tom set him gently down on the ground. Camp had been broken while he was gone. Al passed the bundles up onto the truck, 
the tarpaulin lay ready to bind over the load. Al said, He sure got a quick start. Tom apologised. It had to hit him a little to make him come, poor fella. Didn't hurt him? Ma asked. Don't think so. He's coming out of it. Uncle John was weakly sick on the ground. His spasms of vomiting came in little gasps. I I left a plate of potatoes for you, Tom. Tom chuckled. I, I ain't just in the mood right now. All right, Al, sling up the tarp. The truck was loaded and ready. Uncle John had gone to sleep. Tom and Al boosted and pulled him up the load while Winfeld made a vomiting noise behind the truck and Ruthie plugged her mouth with her hand to keep from squealing. Already? Pa said. Tom asked, where's Rosa Sean? Over there, said Ma. Come on, Rosa Sean, we're going. The girl sat still, her chin sunk on her breast. Tom walked over to her. Come on, he said. I ain't a-going. She did not raise her head. You gotta go. I want Carney. I ain't a-going till he comes back. Three cars pulled out of the camp and up the road to the highway. Old cars loaded with the camps and the people. They clanked up the highway and rolled away, their dim lights glancing along the road. Tom said, Carney will find us. I left word up at the store where it'd be. He'll find us. Ma came up and stood beside him. Come on, Rosa Sean. Come on, honey, she said gently. I want to wait. We can't wait. Ma leaned down and took the girl by the arm and helped her to her feet. He'll find us, Tom said. Don't you worry. He'll find us. They walked on either side of the girl. Maybe he went to get them books to study up, said Rose of Sharon. Maybe he was going to surprise us. Maybe that's just what he done. They led her to the truck and helped her on top of the load, and she crawled under the tarpaulin and disappeared into the dark cave. Now the bearded man from the weed shack came timidly up to the truck. He waited about, his hands clutched behind his back. You gonna leave any stuff a fella could use? He asked at last. Pa said, Can't think of nothing, we ain't got nothing to leave. Tom asked, Ain't you getting out? For a long time, the bearded man stared at him. No, he said at last, but they'll burn you out. The unsteady eyes dropped to the ground. Ah, no, they done it before. Well, why the hell don't you get out? The bewildered eyes looked up for a moment, and then down again, and the dying firelight was reflected readily. I dunno. Takes so long to get stuff together. You won't have nothing if they burn you out. I know. You ain't leaving nothing a fella could use? Cleaned out, Slick, said Pa. The bearded man vaguely wandered away. What's the matter with him? Pa demanded. Cop happy, said Tom. Fella was saying he's a bull simple. Been beat over the head too much. A second little caravan drove past the camp and climbed to the road and moved away. Come on, Pa, let's go. Look here, Pa. You and me and Al ride in the seat. Ma can get on the load. No, Ma, you ride in the middle. Al. 
Tom reached under the seat and brought out a big monkey wrench. Al, you get up behind. Take this here, just in case. If anybody tries to climb up, let him have it. Al took the wrench and climbed up the backboard, and he settled himself cross-legged, the wrench in his hand. Tom pulled the iron jack handle from under the seat and laid it on the floor under the brake pedal. All right, he said. Get in the middle, Ma. Pa said, I ain't got nothing in my hand. You can just reach over and get the jack handle, said Tom. Hope to Jesus you don't need it. He stepped on the starter and the clanking flywheel turned over. The engine caught and died and caught again. Tom turned on the lights and moved out of the camp in low gear. The dim lights fingered the road nervously. They climbed up to the highway and turned south. There comes a time when a man gets mad. Ma broke in. Tom, you you told me. You promised me you wasn't like that. You promised. I know, Ma. I'm I'm a trying, but them deputies. Did you ever see a deputy that didn't have a fat ass? And they waggle their ass and flop their gun around, Ma, he said. If it was the law they was working with, why, we could take it. But it ain't the law. They were working away at our spirits. They are trying to make us cringe and crawl like a whip bitch. They're trying to break us. Why, Jesus, Ma. There comes a time when the only way a fella can get his decency is by taking a sock at a cop. They're working on our decency. Ma said, You promised, Tom. That's how pretty boy Floyd done. I knowed his ma. They hurt him. I'm trying, ma. Honest to God, I am. You don't want me to crawl like a beat bitch with my belly on the ground, do you? I'm a-praying. You gotta keep clear, Tom. The family's breaking up. You gotta keep clear. I try, ma, but... But when one of them fat asses gets to working me over, I got a big job trying. If it was the law, it'd be different. But burning the camp ain't the law. The car jolted along. Ahead, a little row of red lanterns stretched across the highway. Detour, I guess, Tom said. He slid the car and stopped it, and immediately a crowd of men swarmed about the truck. They were armed with pick handles and shotguns. They wore trench helmets and some American Legion caps. One man leaned in the window, and the warm smell of whiskey preceded him. Where do you think you're going? He thrust a red face near to Tom's face. Tom stiffened. His hand crept down to the floor and felt the jack handle. Ma caught his arm and held it powerfully. Tom said, well... And then his voice took on a servile whine. We're strangers here, he said. We heard about there's work in a place called Tulare. Well, goddammit, you're going the wrong way. We ain't gonna have no goddamn Okies in this town. Tom's shoulders and arms were rigid, and a shiver went through him. Ma clung to his arm. The front of the truck was surrounded by the armed men. Some of them, to make a military appearance, wore tunics and Sam Brown belts. Tom whined, Which way is it at, mister? You turn right around and head north. And don't come back till the cotton's ready. Tom shivered all over. Yes, sir, he said. He put the car in reverse, backed around and turned. He headed back the way he had come. Ma released his arm and patted him softly. 
and Tom tried to restrain his hard-smothered sobbing. Don't you mind, Ma said, don't you mind. Tom blew his nose out of the windows and wiped his eyes on his sleeve. Sons of bitches. You done good, Ma said tenderly. You done just good. Tom swerved a little into a side road, ran a hundred yards and turned off his lights and motor. He got out of the car carrying the jack handle. Where are you going? Ma demanded. Just gonna look. We ain't going north. The red lanterns moved up the highway. Tom watched them cross the entrance of the dirt road and continue on. In a few moments, there came the sounds of shouts and screams, and then the flaring light arose from the direction of the Hooverville. The light grew and spread, and from the distance came a crackling sound. Tom got in the truck again. He turned around and ran up the dirt road without lights. At the highway, he turned south again and turned on his lights. Ma asked timidly, Where are we going, Tom? Gone south, he said. We couldn't let them bastards push us around. We couldn't. Try to get around the town without going through it. Yeah, but where are we going? Pa spoke for the first time. That's what I want to know. Gonna look for that government camp, Tom said. A fella said they don't let no deputies there. Ma, I gotta get away from him. I'm I'm scared I'll kill one. Easy, Tom. Ma soothed him. Easy, Tommy. You done good once. You can do it again. Yeah, and after a while I won't have no decency left. Easy, she said. You got to have patience. Why, Tom, us people will go on living when all them people is gone. Why, Tom, we're the people that live. They ain't gonna wipe us out. Why, we're the people. We go on. We take beating all the time. I know. Ma chuckled. Maybe that makes us tough. Rich fellas come up, and they die, and their kids ain't no good, and they die out. But Tom, we keep it coming. Don't you fret none, Tom. Different time's coming. How do you know? I don't know how. They entered the town, and Tom turned down a side street to avoid the centre. By the streetlights, he looked at his mother. Her face was quiet and a curious look was in her eyes, eyes like the timeless eyes of a statue. Tom put out his right hand and touched her on the shoulder. He had to, and then he withdrew his hand. Never heard you talk so much in my life, he said. Wasn't never so much reason, she said. He drove through the side streets and cleared town, and then he crossed back. At an intersection, the sign said 99. He turned south on it. Well, anyways, they never shoved us north, he said. We'll still go. We'll still go where we want, even if we have to crawl for the rat. The dim lights felt along the broad black highway ahead. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. 
And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.